right, once again, good morning. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 10. If you're new with us, we always like to just say hi to the new folks. Good to see you. And to let you know that we are currently studying John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And the way we do all of our studies in God's Word is verse by verse. And this morning we find ourselves in chapter 10, where Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd. And what made Jesus such a good shepherd, besides the fact that he's God incarnate, uh, well, it was the fact that he was willing to die and eventually, of course, did die on the cross to save the sheep. He said in verse 11, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now, guys, that statement by Jesus uh, really served to set the stage for his comparison of himself as the good shepherd in contradistinction to the bad shepherds of Israel, which would be described Pharisees, chief priests, and so on. The Lord called them hirelings in verses 12 and 13 because they really didn't care about the sheep, of course, the sheep being God's people. They really didn't care about God's sheep. They were only in it for the power, prestige, and money they got from the job. And that's what it was. It was a job, uh, for lack of a better term. In fact, Jesus basically tells us they thought it was a job. In verse 12, he says, But a hireling who is not the shepherd... One who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Look, a good shepherd puts the needs and, of course, the lives of the sheep before his own. It was his selfless love for the sheep that made him a good shepherd. You see, only a man who loved the sheep would be willing to put his life on the line to protect them from the predators and thieves, which were a constant problem back then in Israel. A hireling, as we have said before, uh, was nothing more than a paid employee. He didn't own the sheep, didn't really have any real love for the sheep. So when the thieves or predators showed up, well, he'd often choose his life over the sheep's and run away, leaving the sheep alone on their own, defenseless and vulnerable. So we talked about that last week. And uh, verse 14 now, John 10, 14, Jesus once again says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, as we pointed out last time, when Jesus talks about knowing his sheep, and them knowing him. And then he pivots to the Father and says the same thing about his relationship with the Father. I know my Father, and my Father knows me. As we said last week, in all those references to the word know, he uses the Greek word gnosko. And that was a kind of a, a, a very interesting, very important word. Because the word gnosko uh, doesn't mean to know with head knowledge. It's an experiential kind of knowledge. Remember the context. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to a group of people, and among them are some of the scribes and Pharisees. We know that from chapter 8. It's all the same day, really. And so he's got some of these scribes and Pharisees there among the crowd, and uh, Jesus basically says to them, Look, my sheep know me, and I know them by experience. Just like the Father knows me, and I know the Father. 
What he was saying is, using that Greek word, that look, the knowledge I have of the Father and the knowledge he has of me is not a head knowledge. Just like my sheep don't just have a head knowledge of me, like, you know, they know who I am kind of thing. No, it's much deeper than that, all right? Remember now, he's talking in front of a group of people that contain some of the scholars of Israel. The scribes, the Pharisees, and so on were the doctors of the law. They were the scholars. They, those that had studied Judaism and uh, the scriptures for years. They all had their PhDs. They were all very uh, well educated, but they didn't have a relationship with the father through his son. That's his point. You'd be shocked to know how many people in our country have their doctorates in theology who are professors at universities or pastors in churches that can recite scripture to you that have years of learning behind their, you know, their belt but don't even know the Lord. I was reading a, a commentary a few years ago and the author was saved but he was talking about how he spent some time in Germany. He was there for something and had a chance to sit with some liberal theologians. He said he was, he was amazed at how well they knew the scriptures. They could quote from memory large portions of scripture. He was amazed because he knew they didn't know the Lord. Because they denied the resurrection, they denied the humanity of Christ, the virgin birth. It's obvious they weren't saved. And yet they had this knowledge. It was all head knowledge though. And this is what Jesus Christ is saying. He's saying beware of a relationship with God based on head knowledge. It's not real. It gives you the illusion that you have this thing with God going on, but it's not genuine. There's not a real connection there. The connection I have with my sheep, those who have received me by faith, is, is a deep union. It's not just a, a kind of a superficial head knowledge. It's a very intimate relationship that exists between me and those that know me, my sheep. And, the, and I know them those that are saved and connected to me by the Holy Spirit. That is the, a union that no religion can bring you. I don't care how many degrees you have. It only comes when you receive Jesus Christ into your life as your living Lord and Savior. And at that moment, you are born again. The Spirit moves in. Now you're connected to God in a way you'll never know Him through religion. I don't care how much you study or how much you learn. And Jesus said, this is the same kind of relationship I have known with my Father for all eternity. And of course, the Holy Spirit, the Godhead. This is the same union we've enjoyed where we're one with each other. My people are one with me. Very incredible um, statement. And so when the Lord talks about his special, this special relationship that he has with the Jews as God's chosen covenant people. And of course, now I'm talking about the Jews who had received him. Israel was the covenant people of God. That's true. In fact, he calls Israel a fold, a sheepfold. Well, like we studied when we got into chapter 10, every village had a communal sheepfold. And at night, all the shepherds would lead all their flocks into that fold, go home for the night. And it was a guard that watched over all the flocks. In the morning, the shepherds would come one by one, and the shepherd would call to his sheep. They all knew his name. They all knew his call. He knew their names, and they would only listen to him, follow uh, him out of the sheepfold. 
leaving the other sheep there that were not his. Jesus came to call to the sheepfold of Israel. He called uh, to his sheep, those that would receive him, and they responded. And they responded. Now, there were many other Jews who didn't respond. They rejected him, okay? So right now he's talking about those Jews that had, that had responded, that had received him. The disciples were there, of course. They were among those. But Jesus had many, I think about the 12, I should say. But Jesus had many other disciples that followed him. So you understand what he's saying. And then he says something in verse 16 that we said last week, throw some people. He said, and other sheep, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold of Israel, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Of course, as I said last week, I've heard some people say that they know there are people on other planets that God is going to save. And what are you talking about? Well, right here in John 10, 16, Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking about aliens on other planets. Uh, no. No, I mean, most of you probably figured that out. No, it's a reference to Gentiles, to Gentiles that will be saved, which are not of this fold. They're not of Israel, but he is going to reach out to them, going to call to them, and they're going to respond and, and, and all. But Israel was God's covenant people, but not all Jews received the Messiah. Sad thing, Jesus said, you know, many Gentiles will come from east and west and recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. Because a lot of Jews just flat out don't believe. Now, when Jesus talked about this other flock, other sheep, um, I, I'm convinced that those that were there, especially the, the, uh, uh, the scholars of Judaism, knew what he was talking about. This was not a new revelation, folks. It was not a new. It wasn't a shocking truth. It was not even a new revelation. It was a reminder, a reminder of what God had promised through the Jewish scriptures or our Old Testament. I'll just read these so you can write them down. But it goes all the way back to Genesis 12, verse three, when God called an idol-worshiping Gentile named Abram to come out of the earth of the Chaldees, modern Iraq and cross over the Euphrates to a land I will show you, which we knew, know later was Canaan. And when, and when Abram crossed over the Euphrates, some believe that's where the word Hebrew comes from, one who crosses over, as he separated himself from his pagan family and land to become a new nation, the father of a new nation. We know, of course, the nation eventually of Israel. But God didn't want... Abram or his descendants to think that they would be the only people on the face of the earth that God loved and wanted to bless. Because in Genesis 12, verse 3, God does say to Abram, I will bless you, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Why? Because from your loins are going to come Messiah, and he won't be just the Savior of Israel, he will be the Savior of all mankind. And in the kingdom, what do we read in Revelation? Around the throne of God, there are people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and, and people. God loves the whole world and wants to see people saved. But God had made this clear that he wanted Israel to be a light to the Gentiles because he wanted to save Gentiles. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, 
God the Father said, I, the Lord, have called you, speaking of Messiah Jesus. The Trinity having this conversation, you know, uh, sometime, you know, in heaven sometime. Um, but I've called you, Jesus, in righteousness, and you will, and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant. Yes, it was in the blood of Christ the new covenant would be enacted. We'll talk about that more in a second. I'm going to give you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 49, verse 6, again, the Father is talking. He says, Is it too small a thing that you, my Messiah, Jesus, should be my servant? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Well, of course, the word Jesus is the Greek form of Yeshua, uh, which means Jehovah is salvation. Jesus' very name contains the idea that he was, has come for, to save people. And so, guys, the fact that God had said in the Old Testament that Gentiles would at some, would at some point um, benefit from the Jewish Messiah, somehow would be blessed through him, that wasn't a new revelation. Again, look at Genesis 12, verse 3. The fact that God intended to save Gentiles was further confirmed to the Jewish people when God directed them to build the temple, okay, and um, provided an area in the temple precinct where Gentiles seeking to know the God of Israel and possibly proselytize or convert to Judaism could come and they could ask the priest questions. This is a place where seekers... Gentile seekers could come and find out more about the God of Israel in, in, in the hopes perhaps of becoming, uh, converting to Judaism. They actually named the place the court of the Gentiles. Now let me stop here and give you some background with regard to the temple. If you're, uh, if you're here as a regular, bear with me, we've talked about this. I won't belabor it because we have talked about it. For the, for the sake of the new folks, all right? In the New Testament, there are two words which are translated temple. Two words in the Greek translated temple. You have the word for the temple proper, the building, and that's the Greek word naos, uh, which was a building that contained the holy place and the holy of holies. So two compartments. You enter into the holy place, and you had the table of showbread to the right, menorah to the left, and right in front of the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, you had the gold, small golden altar called the altar of incense. All right, And only the high priest, now the, all priests, Jewish priests, came into that first compartment all the time. That's where they did a lot of their ministry. But only the high priest, and then only once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, could enter into the second uh, uh, chamber, the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant had been at one time, uh, and, uh, and so on. That was the only time they could enter into that uh, compartment. But uh, this temple proper, the temple building, sat on top of Mount Moriah, which, by the way, is still called the Temple Mount to this day. The temple proper was surrounded by 35 to 40 acres called the temple precincts. Think of that in your mind, okay? Building relatively small compared to the whole complex. Uh, many acres, okay? The Greek word for the whole area is hieron. But the area of the temple precincts closest to the temple proper consisted, listen, of a series of successive and ascending courtyards that led up to the temple mount. If we start at the top of the temple mount and move downward, 
Here's how those courts go. The uppermost court, the one that the temple building actually sat upon, was called the court of the priests. It was called the court of the priests because only the Jewish priests could enter into this courtyard, this area, where they would offer sacrifices to God on the brazen altar of sacrifice, kill the animals there, offer them to God. Uh, and then, of course, after they finished sacrificing an animal, they would go and wash in one of the ten lavers that, uh, that Solomon had built for the temple. And these were wash basins. And after that, they would enter into the first compartment, the holy place where they would often burn incense, which was a form of prayer for the people. Prayer was ascending to God. And um, from that uppermost court, you'd walk several steps down until you came to the next court, which was called the Court of the Israelites. Court of the Israelites. It was in this court that the Jewish men, listen, and only Jewish men could assemble for temple services and other things that went on throughout the year. From the court of the Israelites, you descend several more steps until you came to the court of the women. Now, guys, it was into this court that any Jew could enter, male or female. It was called the court of the women because this was as far as a Jewish woman could go. From the court of the women, you descended five more steps to a level area which there was erected a five-foot stone barricade that went around the entire temple enclosure. And then from that level area, there were 14 more steps that descended to ground level to the court of the Gentiles, also known as the outer court. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, that five-foot stone wall that separated the court of the women from the court of the Gentiles had signs all around it at various intervals stating... Uh, that no foreigner, in other words, no Gentile, was permitted to go any further. The sign read, and I quote, No Gentile may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So no ambiguity there. All right? Left nothing to the imagination. All right? They weren't playing games. They wanted to make sure you knew full well that to go from the area that was a, Gentiles were allowed in to cross that wall, walk through that wall to the court of the women, you had now violated Jewish law and you would be executed. And Rome allowed it. Rome allowed it because they did want to honor what the Jews believed. <laughs> um we learn, well, let me just say this, that wall was a visible reminder of the separation that existed between the Jews as God's covenant people and then the Gentiles. The Jews as God's covenant people were closest to him. And guys, it was no accident the way they laid this thing out. Think about this. Okay, think about this. Uh, you had on the very top level where the actual temple stood itself, the temple building, which is where God dwelt, the priests. Come down a little farther, you had the Jewish men. Come down a little farther from that, the Jewish women. See, that was by design. Because in the Jewish mind, the priests were the closest to God and, and all. Okay, uh, The Jewish men, a um, little more removed, but still close. Women, well, you know, rabbis every morning got up and thanked God that they weren't born a slave, a woman, or uh, what was the third one? Uh, a slave, a woman, or a Gentile. That's what they felt about you gals, I'm sorry. Uh, but that, that's where they were coming from, okay? 
Now, if you think that was uh, a little slap in the face of you were a woman, okay, that you were that far away from God uh, on a lower level than the men and the priests, think about the Gentiles. I mean, whatever differences you had from the priests to the Jewish women, it was nothing compared to the monumental difference you had between the Jewish women, Israel, and then the Gentiles. They were all the way down because in the Jewish mind, they were not part of the covenant people of God. They were not close to God. They were afar off and lower in stature than the Jews. All right, that's, that's what was being communicated. According to the Gentiles being on the very lowest level. That's what the Jews thought. That's how they, you know, and some of the rabbis even taught that, uh, no, God didn't love Gentiles, that he only committed, created Gentiles to feel the fires of hell. And they got a, you know, and they, they began to think because God chose them, they were better than anyone else. And God made that clear in the law. He said, look, I didn't choose you because you were a numerous people. You were a, a, a small, insignificant people. I didn't choose you because you were a righteous people. You were stiff-necked and rebellious people. Why did I choose you? Because I just decided to choose you. That's it. Get your thumbs out of your suspenders. You know, you didn't do anything. That caused me to go, wow, what a great people. I got to have them be my people. No, it didn't work that way. And even though in the minds of many Jews, not all, but many, they saw the Gentiles as dogs. In fact, that's what they called them dogs. They weren't even human in the Jewish, many Jews' minds. But see, in the mind of God, even though the Gentiles were technically outside the covenant relationship that he had with the Jews and were therefore, quote-unquote, far away, listen, it didn't mean that he didn't love the Gentiles. It didn't mean that he didn't want to save them and be close to them, to make them a part of his covenant people. He did. Remember that God has, had told his covenant people, Israel, that they were to be a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 42, 6, 49, verse 6. It was his desire to bless every nation through the coming Messiah, Gentiles as well as Jews. And to demonstrate this God, to demonstrate this God placed in the temple precinct the court of the Gentiles for the purpose of winning Gentiles to himself. It was the place where Gentiles, we just said, could come and learn more about the God of Israel in order to maybe convert to the Jewish faith, to Judaism, and thereby bring them near to God, near to God, which, guys, found its ultimate fulfillment in the new covenant, in the new covenant. You see, it was always in God's mind and in his heart to save Gentiles, but it was not in his mind or in his heart to add them to Judaism or the Mosaic Covenant. He was going to do a new thing, right? Remember he said, I, you know, you don't take a new patch and patch up an old wineskin, right? You don't uh, take a new piece of cloth and use it to patch uh, an old garment. Basically, I've not come to patch up Judaism and kind of do something new, renovate, remodel. I've come to put that aside and to do something brand new. Jesus said, I have fulfilled the law. It is finished, and it paved the way for a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, check it out. God promised way back to Jeremiah, there's coming a day where I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not only the covenant I made with their forefathers, when I took them by the hand, led them out of Egypt, that covenant they broke. 
I'm going to put my laws in their hearts. I'm going to have a relationship with them where they're going to love me and obey me from the heart. And Romans 11, the Gentiles are going to be grafted in and be a part of my covenant people. The new covenant, right? Turn to Ephesians 2, because Paul makes a big deal out of this. He even mentions that stone wall, that barrier, that if you didn't know the cultural uh, background, you could read uh, uh, Ephesians 2 and, and miss what he was saying. I'll read to you the NLT second edition, Ephesians 2, starting with verse 13. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has, has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He's talking about that stone wall that separated Jew and Gentile, visible reminder of that separation. He says uh, that was for a time, but now it's over. Okay, God's doing a new thing. Verse uh, uh, 15 again, he made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people uh, from two groups. We call it the church, the body of Christ. Verse 16, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news, the gospel of peace to you Gentiles who who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Both Jew and Gentile needed Jesus. Okay, the Jews were his covenant people. They had the law, but they were still unsaved. Uh, you know, they didn't, by faith, embrace the one that God said was coming. Abraham believed God. It was accounted him for righteousness, uh, Genesis 15, 6, right? It was always by faith that a person was, was accounted righteous by God. Jews needed Jesus. Gentiles needed Jesus. didn't matter if you were a Jew and you were close to God or a Gentile far away. Everyone needed Jesus, and together they would become the family of God, one new man in Christ. Verse 18, now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. I love it. So when Jesus said in John 10, 16, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. You understand what he was saying. He's talking about the church, which Paul says in Ephesians 3, I believe, was a new creation of God, a new creation. God didn't just patch up Judaism and maybe just add a little uh, addition to it to include the Gentiles. He set that all aside and did something brand new, brand new. Now, back in John 10, verse 17, he said, Therefore my Father loved me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Now, as we talked last week a little bit on this, Look, no man on earth, not Pilate, not the Roman government, took Jesus' life from him. He obeyed the Father's command, submitted to the process, that mock trial he went through, two of them actually, one civil, one religious. He, he endured it, he, he, uh, he uh, agreed to it, he put up with it, submitted to it, and then eventually laid down his life freely, freely for fallen humanity. When I say for fallen humanity, I'm not just talking about the elect, as some people like to do. I'm talking about all of humanity. 1 John 2.2, 2, 
He is the propitiation, Jesus, propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God so loved the world, and not just the world of the elect, as I heard some people uh, interpret that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not have to perish in hell, but have everlasting life. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself, Jew and Gentile. You know, some say that Jesus was caught off guard when he was arrested in the garden and then eventually crucified. He was caught off. What kind of Jesus do you have? Where, where are you getting this Jesus? It's not the Jesus of the Bible. I, mean, I don't know what it is. Who, I don't know who that Jesus is. I know who my Jesus is. He's God incarnate. He wasn't caught off guard. He said, for this cause I came into the world to die. Um, I mean, you know, as we study the Gospels, he, he prophesied his own crucifixion four times in the gospel. I'll just give you the references. Luke 13, 33, Matthew 16, verse 21, Matthew 17, verse 22, and Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Four times he prophesied he was going to be crucified. In fact, this is the fourth time in John's gospel, chapter 10, that he predicted he was going to die. Verses 11, 14, 17, and 18. Skeptics, of course, they don't, you know, they, they, they jump on this, okay, and, and will say something to the effect, so what? Jesus predicted his own, his own death. So what? I mean, it doesn't take a prophet to predict you're going to be killed when you go around shooting your mouth off about being a king. That's insurrection. Rome, the Roman government killed a lot of people for insurrection. So, you know, you, you, you act like that's a big thing. Jesus knew he was going to die. Well, it's true. Like, okay. That, that, they're right. Anyone can say things in a given situation that could get them killed. Go to a Bernie Sanders rally and yell MAGA around the place and see what happens. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Okay. It's not going to end well. All right? But okay, anyone can say things in a given situation that can get them killed. I, I agree with that. But listen, how many could say after that that they had the power to raise themselves from the dead afterwards? And not only that, but promises Jesus did to raise everyone from the dead who has ever died. Remember we were talking, we studied John 5? Jesus says that the day is coming when all who are in the graves are going to hear my voice and come forth, some to the resurrection of the just, some to the resurrection of condemnation. Someday everyone in the grave is going to hear the voice of the Son of Man and they're going to come forth. That's power. Resurrection power. Of course, he had a lot to say about his people enjoying that resurrection life because once we are resurrected, we're not going, you know, the unbelievers, they're resurrected, they're going to hell forever. We're going to heaven forever. And you can read, of course, what he, well, he said in John 14, verse 19, because I live, speaking to his disciples, to all of us, you will live also. Because Jesus rose from the dead, he conquered death for every one of us who are his people. But you can also read John 6, verses 39 and 40, and verse 44. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, he said, His voluntary death was followed by his victorious resurrection. From the human point of view, it appeared that Jesus was executed. But from the divine point of view, he laid down his life willingly. When Jesus cried on the cross, it is finished, he then voluntarily yielded up his spirit to the Father, 
Three days later, he voluntarily took up his life again and arose from the dead. The Father gave him the authority to do this in love. Sometimes, words be said, the scriptures teach that it was the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. That's Acts 2.40, excuse me, 2.32, Romans 6.4, and Hebrews 13, verse 20. Here, the Son stated that he had the authority to take up his life again. Both are true. For the Father and the Son work together in perfect harmony. Perfect harmony. In a previous sermon, Jesus had hinted that he had power to raise himself from the dead. John 5, verse 26. Of course, this was a claim that the Jewish leadership protested because it was tantamount to saying, I am God, end quote. Well, sure it was. The fact that he went around claiming that he had power over death, only God has power over death. I mean, Jesus didn't say this like one time in a corner. Everywhere he went, he proclaimed that he was God in human form, the great I am. We've been studying that as we go through John's gospel. You have two references right here in John 10. I am the door, I am the good shepherd. Now, as you can imagine, the crowd that was present that day fell into basically two categories, two main categories, two main schools of thought as to their feelings about Jesus. Verse 19. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he is a demon and is mad. So, you know, I don't know if this is the Jewish leadership primarily. Uh, I think it is. Even the Jewish leadership was kind of divided, all right, uh, as to who Jesus was. But it uh, could have been the crowd in general, too. But uh, division among them, uh, among the Jews because of these things. Uh, some said, you know, he is a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who was a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Going back to chapter 9, when Jesus healed a blind guy from, who was blind from birth. That's what started this whole thing, okay? But look, Jesus was a radical. Think about this. Jesus Christ was a radical. And you can't be neutral when it comes to a radical. They force you to take a position. Either he is a madman or he's the son of God. Either you're for him, you're against him. I think one pastor and author put it well. He said, and I quote, the issue is still the same today as it was then. Either the Lord Jesus Christ was a madman or he is the savior of the world. Either he is a demon or he is the son of God. There has always been that division. The so-called liberal theologians are the most inconsistent and illogical in their views about Jesus Christ. On the one hand, they call him a good teacher, a great moral example. Then on the other hand, they call him a fraud and a madman. He is either a fraud or he is the son of God. Jesus Christ puts you on the horns, on the horns of a dilemma, my friend. Either he is a madman or he is your God and your Savior, end quote. And that choice is up to the individual person. All right. For just the last few minutes we have, I want to go back and look at verse 21. John 10, verse 21. Because I saw something here that I thought we, we ought to talk about for a little bit. Okay? Listen, it reads again, Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Listen. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? He can't be demon-possessed. Why? He's doing good miracles. Their theology taught them that God only does good miracles. Okay, good miracles. 
So Jesus can't be demon-possessed. He can't be bad because he's doing good stuff, good supernatural stuff. He just opened a guy's eyes who was blind from birth. This guy has to be from God. Okay, well, we know he was from God, but be careful. Be careful. I mean, does the devil, and by extension his demons, do, do they have the supernatural power? Yeah. Can the devil and his demons work miracles? Yeah. Can his servants, the devil's servants, false prophets, false messiahs, can he give them power to work miracles as well? Yeah. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 24 and 5? Now listen to me. I don't believe in that section he was talking to our generation. He was talking to the tribulation generation. I am pre-trib. I believe that the rapture will happen before the tribulation period officially begins. But, but I want you to know we're already seeing the deception. The, the mystery of iniquity is already at work, Paul said, 2,000 years ago. And it's been building. It's going to reach its crescendo during the tribulation period, as we'll see in just a moment. But Jesus warned this generation that was coming. He said, for false messiahs and false prophets will, will rise up and perform great signs and wonders. The Greek is, is the word for miracles. So as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I have warned you about this ahead of time. Jesus warned us. Folks, we know that the greatest false prophet and greatest false Christ that will ever walk the face of the earth is the Antichrist. The Antichrist. Now, Jesus has the power in himself to, you know, of course, lay his life down, but to pick it up again. Of course, he willingly died on the cross, and of his own will, he willed his body to come back to life. He's God. He has the power to do that. The devil is a counterfeiter. Everything God does, Satan tries to counterfeit, to deceive. All right? Everything. And during the tribulation period, the devil is going to deceive the world into thinking that their leader, the Antichrist, that he also has the power to raise himself from the dead. Why do I say that? Because the Bible teaches that during this tribulation period, first of all, not everybody's going to love this guy. A lot of folks will and follow him. Not everyone's going to love this guy. Somebody's going to try to kill him. There's going to be an assassination uh, you know, attempt. It's going to be, it's going to be uh, um, uh, it's successful. But we know that, and I'm just paraphrasing Revelation 13, verse 3, that at one point uh, somebody inflicts on the Antichrist a mortal wound. Now, we know from Zechariah, I believe, that it says that his right eye will become blind and his right arm, right hand, will be uh, uh, paralyzed, which has caused some to think maybe a gunshot wound to the left side of his head will paralyze the right side of his body. I think that's the way it works. I'm not a doctor, so if you're a doctor here, come up and straighten me out. But, but that's what some, I've heard some people believe, okay? And this guy's going to look dead. He's going to be laying there and looking dead. I mean, they're going to examine him, and for all intents and purposes, the world thinks he's dead. Now, I don't personally believe he is going to be really dead, because I don't believe that the devil has the power of life. I don't believe the devil has the power to raise the dead. But it's not going to matter, because Satan is such a good counterfeiter. And he's going to present such a convincing counterfeit death and resurrection of this Antichrist, 
that the whole world is going to believe it was genuine. And in fact, it would be such a powerful testimony to the world of this man's godlike attributes and power. Think about this now, okay? Well, let me just finish. In Revelation 13, it talks about how that after this guy is raised from the dead, the whole world is so enamored with him. I mean, they respected him and they loved him before this, but now they begin to worship him. It says here that um, verse uh, 4 of Revelation 13, so they worshiped the dragon, that's a reference to Satan, and to the ant, and they worshiped the Antichrist. We have the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The devil is counterfeit to that. He's the Father, the dragon, his son, the Antichrist. And who's the Holy Spirit? The false prophet. The false prophet. Okay? What has always amazed me is this is going to be a time in the history of the world where everything has completely been inverted, morally speaking and spiritually speaking. We know that a lot of times people that say good is evil and evil is good, that, that's when they get to the point where they're almost at judgment. But the idea that during this period of time, people are going to look at Satan as the good God, Antichrist as the good son, and the false prophet, we call him the false prophet as, you know, the good spirit, in a sense. And the true God, the true Son, the true Holy Spirit, they are inverted to where we would think of the devil, the Antichrist, and the false prophet today. That's amazing to me. But after this guy raises himself from the dead, quote-unquote, the world goes bananas. They go berserk with this guy. They start worshiping him. They start worshiping him. In fact, they go on to say that this solidifies a worldwide movement of followers that say, who is like the beast? Who was able to make war with him? This gives them the, the, the confidence and the boldness to think they can take on Jesus when he returns and uh, defeat him and, 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 and go on forever in control. So how do they know Jesus is coming? They read the Bible. It, it, it's, it's spelled out very clearly in the Bible exactly when Jesus is going to return. From the time the Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies, 1260 days later, here comes Jesus. They know he's coming. And so they, they gather in the Valley of Megiddo with their bazookas and AK-47s and surface air missiles and Apache helicopters. And here they, you know, they're going to get them. They're so deceived by this Antichrist who, who's got them thinking he's God. He can't be killed. Follow me and we'll be victorious. We won't let Jesus take this world back. It's ours. Of course, there's no battle. The Lord comes back with all of his saints. And what does he do? He speaks a word. And they're all vaporized. The valley is filled with their blood. Because that same word that spoke everything into existence, that's pretty powerful, isn't it? Same word that's going to destroy them. If you want to know more about that, we'll start in Revelation soon. Come on up. But one of the reasons, and we'll finish with this, one of the reasons that the world worships the Antichrist as their Messiah and Savior, one of the reasons is because he has power to perform miracles. That's, pretty, that's a pretty powerful thing. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, quickly. Because Satan, uh, Satan Paul, I'm sorry, Paul, 
Paul talks about this in Second. I was going to say Second Thessalonians. My tongue got in front of my eye tooth. I couldn't see what I was saying. And uh, he says in Second Thessalonians two, verse nine. The coming of the lawless one, that's a reference to the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and listen, lying wonders. All those words are used of Jesus' miracles. They're genuine miracles. It's just that what's attached to them is a false message, a false gospel. That's the thing. The miracles are real. The word is a lie that they're being fed by the Antichrist and false prophet, okay? And um, verse 10, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because, listen, they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. They rejected the gospel. These satanic lying wonders, real miracles that are designed to deceive and lead people astray, will be very persuasive, but will only affect those who have rejected the truth those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. God gives people a chance to receive the truth, the gospel. And he doesn't revoke the opportunity because they reject it a few times. I know people that have rejected the gospel for years and eventually received it. But here's the thing. Every time a person says no to Jesus Christ, it becomes a little easier to say no next time. The heart gets a little harder, a little harder, a little harder. And finally, they pass the point of no return where their heart is so hard they can't believe. We've talked about this. I'm not going to go in it, into it. It's like Pharaoh. Harden his heart, harden his heart, harden his heart, harden his heart. God said, okay, fine, that's what you want. I'll harden your heart all the more. If you don't want the truth, I'll take it away and you can embrace the lies you love so much. Those that reject the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will eagerly at this period of time accept the damning false gospel preached by the false prophet and antichrist. A gospel that is seemingly verified, listen, by spectacular supernatural signs. So again, back to John 10. Can a demon or the devil open the eyes of the blind? I believe the answer is yes. So how can we, as God's people right now, keep from being deceived by the devil's lies? I mean, right now, somewhere in the world, he's using supernatural signs to confirm that what he is saying is true and it's all lies. The closer we get to Jesus' return, Jesus said, deception would ramp up and so would these miracles that are lying, signs and wonders. It's going to reach its you know, climax in the tribulation, but what are right now? We're already seeing deception in the world, big time, in the church. How can we keep from being deceived by the devil's lies when they're coupled with maybe supernatural power? Well, going back to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, he said, for false Christ and false prophets will, this is for the future generation, but it applies right now. False Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive if possible even the elect. They'll do miracles. See, I have warned you beforehand. When God tells us something before it happens, what do we call that? Prophecy. Prophecy. The devil knows that. So he has gotten a lot of churches to back away from teaching prophecy. 
too controversial, you know, uh, it's too pie in the sky. We got to focus around what's going on right now. And of course, if you don't know what's coming, you can't be vigilant, as Jesus and all the other apostles warned us about in the New Testament. Be looking for his coming. Evil servant is sleeping and not watching for his master's return. Well, how are you going to watch for your master's return if you don't know the signs of his coming? How are you going to know that if you don't know prophecy? That's why Paul said the church is sleeping in the light. That was 2,000 years ago, uh, Romans uh, 13. It's high time for the, for the church to wake up out of its sleep. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Well, if that was 2,000 years ago, guess what? It's really close now. Yet the church is sleeping in the light for the most part. Not you guys. I'm just talking about churches that are not teaching prophecy and telling people what's coming, to, what to look for, right? I mean, God told us these things and, and then warned us to be vigilant so that we wouldn't be taken in by Satan's deceptions, that we would know what he's plotting, what he's going to be doing. And ultimately, of course, to keep our eyes open for the return of Jesus Christ. You can read Deuteronomy 13. We're done. Out of time. Verses 1 and 4. To 1 to 4. Where God basically says, if somebody comes to you, Israel, and they have the power to work miracles, but then they, they give you a false message to worship other gods, it's a test. I want to see if you're going to love me because you love my word, and you're going to obey what I have said, or you're going to be misled by the supernatural experience, that's a powerful thing. What God said is, here's how you're going to be protected. You're going to protect yourself. Don't look at the supernatural sign. That could be counterfeit. You keep your eyes on what I have said. You'll never go wrong if you cling to my word. You can be deceived if you look to miracles, signs and wonders. Some churches are that's all they're built on, is signs, running after signs and wonders. They're going to be ripe for the Antichrist when he comes. So cling to the word. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Be vigilant, because your enemy, the, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Jesus is coming soon. We want him to come and find us alert, awake, watching, where he can say to us, well done good and faithful servants. Now come, enter the joy of your Lord. Amen? Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us things in your word to look for, that we're not taken by surprise. We're not deceived by any deception of the devil. And Lord, we ask you to give us grace to become, just give us a, a hunger for the word like we've never known before, a voracious hunger that will cause us to want to feed on it morning, noon, and night. And as we do, to grow strong and discerning and watchful. Father, we ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.